0: All right. I said earlier that our Q and A was going to be is already scripted for tonight. And by scripted, I don't mean that uh, I'm going to be we're going to be doing a skit. Not that kind of scripted. But I've already composed uh, a few questions that I've sent to Jason ahead of time, and said on the first night I'm going to be asking these questions. And then I have a couple of questions that I have not sent to him yet, and you have not seen. I didn't tell you about that until just now, okay. because the goal of that is I, I do want to get his unvarnished, unprepared. Response to a couple of these questions. So we're going to start off with a little bit about getting to know Dr. Lyle. Did you grow up in a Christian home?
1: I did. My uh, parents are Christian. Praise God. I'm very grateful for that. And, uh, and and most of my most of my grandparents even. So I was very blessed, and I'm, I'm just very grateful for that.
0: You have uh, Christian siblings? I do.
1: I have a brother and a sister, and they are both believers, as far as I know. My br- my brother actually has Down syndrome, and so it's t- it's tough to know kind of what he understands, but. Uh, he He as far as I can tell, he loves jesus and and uh, we talk about that sometimes
0: and how did God save you
1: uh miraculously uh, he, uh, you know when I was very young, I was probably seven or so when and i, I at that point, of course, my theology wasn 't that great, but I did know that I was a sinner and that and that i couldn't possibly pay for my own sins or except except in, for an eternity in hell. And uh, I knew that I needed the Savior. I knew that Jesus is God. He's the Son of God and God himself. And paid for my sins on the cross. And that by trusting in him, by repenting of my sins and trusting in him, he would be willing to save me. And uh, I I believe that is the time that I was saved when I was about seven years old.
0: Have you always been one of these wacky young earth creationists? You you know, it's
1: interesting. I, I had never heard about young earth until I was in college. Isn't that interesting? And, of course, I grew up in the church. But it just wasn't talked about, and uh, so I, I probably accept. I'm sure I accepted the billions of years just because I hadn't thought about it. Even though in the back of my mind it was probably uh, niggling at me that wait a minute, there's some you know that doesn't quite fit with Genesis. And in college, somebody mentioned to me that you know that the Earth is well, it really is young, and there's science to confirm that. And in in a very short period of time, I realized well, yeah, of of course that's what the Bible teaches. And then I started studying the science that that backs that up as well.
0: And where do you live now, and what church do you attend?
1: I now live in Colorado Springs, and I attend uh, Hope Chapel of Colorado Springs.
0: What kind of church is it? Small, it's, big? Uh,
1: it's a small church. It's a, uh, it's a Reformed Baptist church, and it's, uh, uh, it's a really good church. It's, uh, I, I think it's probably the, the best one I've ever been a part of, really. I've only been there for a few months because I, I just moved to Colorado Springs.
0: And did they know you when you showed up?
1: They, they knew me when I, when I showed up. They, they recognized me, and so I thought, this is probably going to be a good church. <laughs>
0: When I show up here, people recognize there, me, too. There you go. So. There you go. That's how you know it's good. Yeah. Yeah. With your travel schedule, how often do you get to stay home?
1: Uh, about half of the weekends of the year I'm home, and the other half I'm out, something like that. And it's, uh, it comes and goes. It, it, the, in, um, I've had a really busy season up until now. I've got another event after this one. i got a Florida event uh, next week, so I'll be out next weekend as well. Um, and then in summer it kind of tapers off. So I guess people don't like apologetics as much in the in the summer, so uh, they're out doing other things. And and also in December because you know we we don't want to mess up Christmas with apologetics or anything like that. So uh,
0: yeah. And what sparked your interest in astronomy? Because you typically do not run into people who are experts in the heavens, astronomy, who also believe in a creator and a young Earth uh, creation cosmology.
1: I've liked astronomy since I was. As far back as I can remember, and uh, you know, my dad had an interest in it, and his dad had an interest in it. They both had small telescopes, and I, uh, I, when I was probably in high school, I usurped my dad's telescope and began using it with his with his blessing, out, and just uh, really enjoyed that. But even when I was little, even I, if if uh, we make the trip to our our little county library, I'd always get the astronomy books there. And, and other sciences, too. I like all the sciences. I really do. I like biology and geology. There's just something special about space. It's beautiful. It's kind of abstract. And, uh, and so I, I'm the first person in my family to go into, a, into astronomy professionally. But uh, it's in the genes, apparently. Uh, and, and I just think it's something that, that God placed in me the bible says the heavens declare the glory of god and there is something when you when you observe the heavens in in a telescope and i and i love sharing that experience with others uh, i have a pretty decent telescope now and i love showing people the heavens in that it's especially christians who can appreciate what they're looking at as the handiwork of the creator and just seeing the light bulb go on and wow it really gives you an appreciation for the lord not that not that we need that to have an appreciation for the lord but it just kind of enhances it so uh, i've liked it since i was really young
0: and how did you get involved in physics?
1: It's you know it's the same um, it's the same kind of thing. In um, I, I've always just thought it was interesting the way the universe works, and there's there's a strong connection, of course, between astronomy and and physics. You have to know a bit about one to to do the other, and so uh, especially things like quantum mechanics, which is kind of weird, and and relativity. I actually the uh, the the Einstein book actually I read a book by Einstein. I, I was in, I think it was in eighth grade, and it just caught my attention. This, 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 this branch of physics where it deals with time and, and, uh, and, and, and not being what we think it is. I like things that are kind of abstract and a little counterintuitive, and, uh and uh, physics is that way. And it's, and it's interesting. I like to know how things work and, and, and make connections.
0: I was reading the Hardy Boys in eighth grade, <laughs> which is kind of abstract and high-minded as well. <laughs> it sure is.
1: It sure is. Yeah.
0: So you and I are much alike, and I. are. Yeah. Did your young earth theology cause problems in the secular universities that you attended?
1: Yes, uh, it did. But um, you know, <laughs> it's something we, you got to be a little bit careful about. This. this is something I recommend to students when they go off to the university. It's it's best to be a little bit quiet about about uh, being a creationist. I hate to say that because you want to you want to share with folks, but there's a time and a place for everything, right? There's a time and a place. And your professors don't care what you think anyway. They're there to teach you. And uh, I've been on both sides of that. I've been a student, I've been a teacher. And so um, I I learned, in, in graduate school, I learned to be a little bit quiet about about uh, about young earth, and that was the real stickler there. I don't think people knew I was a Christian, and I don't think that bothered them. I think they thought that well, that's just some sort of emotional thing that you know they go to church every Sunday and you feel nice for a little while, and if that you know if that makes you feel good, more power to you. I don't think they realized that. Yes, I actually believe the Bible, and uh, you know I believe it's real history. It's not just church is not just a social gathering for me. It's uh, it's important to me to be with uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, it was an issue a little bit. Um, Trying to think. There was one instance where it really concerned me. See, see, when I first started graduate school, I had this belief that um, you know it's a university, and of course it's you know that's going to be you know academia and a, a utopia of ex- freedom of expression to consider various options, and it's not that way. <laughs> it is that way if you're not a Christian, but there is there is this belief that um, that Christianity is sort of backwards and anti-academic, and so. You, ha- you do have to be a little bit careful about that. So by, the, by my second or third year, I was a little bit more careful. My first year, I was not so careful, and at one point, it nearly got me in trouble because I did a talk on campus on creation. I shouldn't. I, it wasn't wise, but the Lord protected me anyway. And uh, it got back to one of my professors who said, "We need to let this kid go. You know, they, they, we don't want him here." And uh, fortunately, God had the right people in the right place at the right time. My, my department chair said, "No, he's he's you know he he was doing that on." As a function of a campus ministry, so it's a little it gets a little weird that he believes that, but um, praise God, the right guy was in the right place at the right time. That doesn't always happen. So I've known of cases where people have been uh, vocal about being a creationist and they get they get booted from the program. It happens. So that's why I, I recommend caution. What has
0: earned you the most hostility from your academic peers being a Christian? Or being a young Earth creationist Christian specifically.
1: Oh, being a young yeah, being a young Earth creationist. Because, would, would they have objected
0: to you being a Christian per se?
1: I don't think so. Uh, some some of them maybe, but most of them I, most of them knew I was that I went to church on Sunday and and they they understood that. And my advisor knew that. Um, I don't think he knew I was a young Earth creationist because I didn't volunteer that information. You know, there's a, there's a the Bible talks about the wisdom in restraining your words at times. There is wisdom in that. So. Um, it was, yeah, it was the young earth. That would have been the real, the real issue. My denial of evolution, my belief in the biblical timeline. Uh, mo- you need to understand, most non-Christians think of Christianity as more of an emotional, social kind of thing, rather than a, a complete worldview that explains the way the universe is. And I think if they realized what I really believed, they would have been more hostile, probably. I know some of them did know what I believed and were hostile toward it.
0: How did you come to work in Answers in Genesis? Uh, did you know Ken Ham before that? Did you just walk in and say, hey, I'm smarter than anybody else we have on staff. Could you put me on staff?
1: No, I, uh, I, I met Ken Ham. Well, I met him uh, even when I was an undergraduate. It, was, it had to have been, I think it was one of the first answers of Genesis seminars. And uh, I actually went up and asked him a question after. Of course, he wouldn't remember me from that one. But then later on when I was in grad school and I became increasingly frustrated with the constraints that were placed on me. I had the opera. I love I loved teaching. I love sharing the intricacies of the universe with folks and and seeing them get excited about things and uh, but I was frustrated because in the secular setting I had the universe I had the opportunity to teach at the University of Colorado in Boulder and it's a, it's, a, it's it's a liberal school and you're not you, I, I felt that I didn't have the freedom to present anything about God or anything about creation, and that frustrated me that i that I had to teach science from a perspective that I didn't agree with. Uh, And so I thought, you know what, about about halfway through my my graduate school, I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna go and work at a Christian ministry like Answers in Genesis or ICR or something like that, where I will have the freedom to teach science from a biblical perspective. Because science, in my mind, should be glorifying to God. If you're not glorifying God in your science, you're not doing it right. Because science is the study of the systematic way God upholds his creation. And so that's when I kind of made the decision. And then uh, Ken Ham came and spoke in in Colorado a couple times, so I'm at Boulder at this point. And uh was there, remember, the, they had that um, shooting at Columbine. I'm, I'm dating myself; this was a while back, but but it was uh, it was tragic. It was all over the news. And Ken Ham came, was invited to come and speak at Columbine, and uh, in light of that tragedy, on the connection between a belief in evolution and school violence, and there is a connection between those two. You believe that we're just animals, then why not shoot people that you don't like? And so I went and, and reintroduced myself to him and and said, I'm you know I'm a Getting close to getting my PhD in astrophysics, and I'd like to come work for you," <laughs> he said. He said, "Well, send send me a tape." He said, "Or he said, 'Do you do presentations?'" And I said, "Yeah, I do do presentations." And I, um, I Ken Ham is very good at giving uh, what we call a relevance of Genesis presentation, and that's the one that I'll be giving first tomorrow, actually. And I, I kind of use his his, um, I mean, I do I make it my own. I do it my own way, but nonetheless, I used his. Logic to help me piece that together to make that presentation. So um, when I did it, when I did this presentation, I had to record it at a church and I sent it to him. And I think he liked the fact that it kind of copied the way he did it too. So you know, he was he was hearing um, good theology to coming out of that. And he he gave me a call. and He said, "Yeah, when you when you get your PhD, you sign on the dotted line. We'd love to have you here." And uh, and he he was very good to me. He's been a good friend and. And you know, people said, "Well, you know, you left the answers." In yeah, but we left on good terms. And I, in fact, I spoke there at their at their Athe- answering atheist conference just a few or just last month, and it was so fun to see all my friends there. And uh, so that's how I got started with Ken.
0: And then, why did you go to ICR, the Institute for Creation Research? There was
1: an opening there actually for director of research, and I thought that might be that might be a new challenge. And uh, I thought it might be an interesting, too, to live in, in Texas. And I didn't, I didn't like Kentucky very much, to be honest with you. It's OK. It's a, I'm not anti-Kentucky, but um, <laughs> the, the, I don't like the dreary winters where it's all overcast all the time. And in Texas, nice and sunny. And and and, and it was just a new opportunity for me too to direct research there and also to bring uh, the, the presuppositional apologetic, that's what we were talking about this evening, uh, to ICR. I don't, I, previous to my coming there, they weren't really focused on that. I tried to kind of push them in that direction gently. So, uh, Were they good. more evidentialist, and yeah. less presuppositionalist? Yes. Yeah. Yep.
0: Yep. Um, what is the Biblical Science Institute? Why did you start that? And what niche does your ministry fill that Answers in Genesis does not and that ICR does not? What is your unique specialty?
1: Yeah, the, uh, each, each of these ministries, of course, and people say, why can't they all get together? Well, people have different ideas about you know what God lays on our hearts, different groups of people to, that we really want to reach. And uh, Answers in Genesis does a great job at reaching uh, families, and that's great, and I'm all for that. And I've, I'm happy to have contributed to them. ICR tries to reach the elite academics, and I felt like there was a niche in between that was not being filled. I, kinda, I have a heart kind of for students, especially older students that are a little more interested in, in science. They want to go into more depth then, then you can get into some of these f- very family-friendly material, and I'm all for that material. It's just I wanted to go into a little more depth. Kind of, I, I, I try to go just a, aim for a little higher level in terms of, uh, but, but not, but not so academic that only PhDs can understand it. And, and, and I'm sure God wants to save a lot of them too. It's just, uh, I just feel the particular niche that I wanted to hit is, is students who are interested in science and are intimidated because they think evolution's been proved.
0: Give me some quick responses to the following statements. No real scientist believes in a young Earth.
1: False. <laughs> you said quick. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: that was quick. Yeah. Uh, a little slower.
1: Ray Ray uh, Demadian, the inventor of the MRI, is a young Earth creationist. Um, Isaac Newton, as far as I can tell, is a young Earth creationist. He's the father of modern phys- or Father of physics. Uh, been a lot of brilliant people that I've met in my career. David Menton is a brilliant Ph.D. biologist. He's a young earth creationist. Tim Clary, my friend at ICR, is a geologist, Ph.D. geologist, young earth creationist. Andrew Snelling, Ph.D. geologist at, at AIG, a good friend of mine. He's my boss at AIG and just a good, best boss I've ever had. He's just a great guy, uh, very devout Christian. And just as smart as they come in terms of g- understanding geology, boy, is he bright. Uh, my friend uh, Nathaniel Jeanson, one of the smartest people I've ever met, Ph.D. in biology from Harvard and he is a young earth creationist. And but doesn't the fact solid. that
0: they believe in a young earth disqualify them from being a legitimate scientist?
1: That would be the fallacy of the no true Scotsman. The no true Scotsman fallacy is where you redefine a word in a way that's not found in a dictionary to protect a claim from, from counterargument. So somebody comes along and says, well, no Scotsman puts sugar in his porridge. Somebody else comes along and says, ah, not true. Angus is a Scotsman, and he puts sugar in his porridge. He says, well, no true Scotsman puts sugar in his porridge. You see, there's nothing in the definition of a Scotsman that says you have to put sugar in your porridge or not. And so, likewise, there's nothing in the definition of a scientist that says you, you, you have to believe in old earth or anything like that. In fact, a scientist, a scientist is someone who does science. And so if you're using the scientific method and you're doing that professionally, you're a scientist.
0: Why do all the smart people believe in an old earth?
1: Yeah, well, they, we just gave some examples of those who don't, uh, and uh, maybe they I would can, be smarter if they them. believed in an old Earth. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: uh, and I can give many more too of examples of brilliant, brilliant people. And uh, I, I would dare say, you know, if, if you if you want to debate some of these folks, I'd be happy to set it up. But, uh, <laughs> but my fr- again, my friend Nathaniel Jensen, he's just he's just a great guy. He's a he's a real solid Christian, and I, I have kudos, I just have so much respect for him. PhD from Harvard, you, that's not an easy thing to do especially in biology, and I think they knew he was a creationist, and so that's, that's even more remarkable to me that he got through that. And, um, and he's written a book called Replacing Darwin that is very compelling, very compelling scientifically. So there, there are lots of brilliant people that believe in God, believe in biblical creation, believe the Bible, are devout Christians. Uh, keep in mind, though, that God doesn't use often the mighty, the wise of this world, right? God often uses the, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and that's glorious. I think that's wonderful.
0: So why do all these smart people get it so wrong? There's other PhDs on the other side. Why do they get it so wrong?
1: You know, it's, it, it, Ultimately, you need to remember it's a spiritual issue, isn't it? It's a spiritual issue. The, the natural man cannot understand the things of God. He can't accept them because they're spiritually appraised. So you need to understand that it's, it's the same reason that, that I, I could make a wonderful argument for the existence, say, of dark matter, and yet I, Albert Einstein could not understand that argument. Why? Because he's dead. And it's the same way with unbelievers. They are spiritually dead, and therefore they cannot understand the things of God. It's not because they're stupid; it's because they're dead. And we need to remember that. Uh, I got to tell you too, just as 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 a, as a particular mechanism, there there is academic pride. There is academic pride. People who are very smart tend to be arrogant. It just it just happens. And um, does and, the peer God, pressure
0: keep people from? I think that's Making a big up. part
1: of it. I think that's a big part of it. But remember, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Bible says, and so uh, I think I think a big part of it is peer pressure. Uh, this is interesting. I've I've had an opportunity to ask a lot of. I've I spent a lot of time with secular scientists, and some of them I I tremendously respect. They're brilliant. They're they're dead in their trespasses. They're dead in their sins, but they're brilliant. And I've had the opportunity to ask, okay, why do you believe in evolution? Yeah, why do you believe in millions of years, you know? or, or why, do you, why, why evolution? Well, these fossils. And then you pin them down. Which fossils? Oh, well, uh, 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 Lucy, okay, the three-foot tree-dwelling primate. What makes you think evolution? Uh, they don't have an answer. And you pin them down, and they say, well, all these other scientists believe in evolution. Interesting. And you ask them, why do you believe in evolution? Ultimately, it's because everybody else does. And so you have this, talk about circular reasoning. Here's begging the question for you right there in, in, a, in, a, in a fallacious way. And so uh, it's, it's interesting. you think, well, scientists would be above that. They're not. Scientists are people too, and they're affected by peer pressure the same way as everybody else.
0: Atheists would respect you a lot more if you would just admit that the Earth is old and not young.
1: I found the exact opposite is true. The exact opposite is true. Atheists do not respect Christians who don't actually believe what the Bible says. Atheists know very well the Bible says God created in six days. And when, create, when, when Christians try and distort that and say, well, those are symbolic and they're millions of years, the Bible's really, o- God's okay with evolution and or millions of years. The atheists don't respect that because they know they, they know that Christians don't believe their own book. I find it's a lot more powerful to lay all my cards on the table and say, hey, I believe exactly what the Bible teaches. Now, I do believe it's got to be properly interpreted, but there's no doubt that Genesis means what it says. God created six days. If you want to debate the issue, I'd be happy to. I find they respect that a lot more. And they'll say, oh, interesting. They find it refreshing.
0: (laughs) Don't you think you would have a lot more uh, success in evangelism if you didn't throw down the unnecessary stumbling block of a young earth?
1: I think I'd have a lot more success in evangelism if we removed the unnecessarily stumbling block of the gospel. Right? I and mean, we throw that away, you know. Uh, sure, you can convince a lot more people. You, you'll be healthy and wealthy and wise if you just do that. But th- here's the problem: that's not the gospel anymore, is it? And it's the same with with the with the age of the earth. Because the fact is, if the earth's billions of years old, if fossils are billions of years old, you get death before sin. If you get death before sin, then death is not the result of Adam's sin. Where's your gospel then? If that's not the penalty for sin, why did Jesus die on the cross? You need to present the gospel as it is. Now, we don't want to add to the offense of the gospel of being obnoxious or anything like that, but nonetheless, the gospel will be offensive because that's the nature of the beast. People are sinners. They don't like that. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so, if you're doing it right, you're going to offend people. Jesus offended people. That doesn't mean he was doing it wrong. He's the son of God. He did everything right, and people took offense to it because they don't, because they hate God, is what it comes down to. So, yeah, you can water down the gospel and you'll get more converts. It's just, you got to remember what you lead people by is what you lead people to. If you lead them by a watered-down gospel, you lead them to a watered-down gospel. If you lead them by a position that says, so the Bible doesn't really, you don't have to take it seriously, you lead them to the position that you don't really have to take the Bible seriously. And so we have a lot of Christians these days that are tossed about by every wind of doctrine because they're not rooted in in God's Word.
0: What are your thoughts? We're going to transition now to some more technical questions. What are your thoughts on the recent photos of the black hole?
1: Awesome. Yeah, you, you've maybe seen this. They actually were able to uh, link up eight different telescopes around the world, and um, <laughs> what you can do is uh, radio because you can record phase information with radio. In terms, of, it's a radio wave, and you can record the the wavelengths. Uh, there's a mathematical way you can combine the information from these eight telescopes to make it as if it's one big telescope the size of the Earth. That's awesome. And um, the bigger the telescope, the more uh, it's kind of counterintuitive. The bigger the telescope, the, the the more detail you can see. The the smaller details you can see. And so, in in combining these telescopes, they were able to actually image the black hole in the galaxy M87. And we knew it was there. There's there was all kinds of evidence that it was there. But the, we have now an actual picture of it in in, in radio. It's and it's wonderful. And You can see this. It's this. Um, I mean, you can see the black spot, and then there's a an accretion disk around it. People say, Well, why do you see a black hole? It's black. There's material orbiting it and we we knew that was there too even before it was seen and but if you'll see the picture of it you'll see this little orange ring and it's brighter at the bottom due to lorentz beaming that was also expected that's the material moving toward you and so it, it, its energy gets boosted uh, it, it, it matched einstein's predictions exactly and so it's another confirmation of um, general relativity so it's 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 an tech, it's a technological achievement that's just wonderful and and the science itself is just
0: interesting and and uh,
1: yeah, very exciting.
0: Recently, there was an article in Science Alert that talked about a dark matter detector detecting the decay of xenon-124, mm-hmm. and they said that this, the half-life of that element, that atom, is 1 times 10 to the 22nd years.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What was that discovery about? What is dark matter? What is a dark matter detector? What is xenon? And what did I just <laughs> ask you? Quickly, please, we're running out of time. Right.
1: (laughs) 42. No. Um, uh, uh, Xenon is a, uh, it's an element. And it's apparently, that particular version is unstable, so it will decay into other elements. And what they discovered, they actually built a, a, a machine to try and detect dark matter. Dark matter is a substance that we believe is, is very abundant in the universe and yet it, it we have we have trouble detecting it other than gravity the only reason we know it exists is it exerts a gravitational pull on other things and so uh, this the stars that are orbiting in their in galaxies they're orbiting faster than they would if there were no dark matter. So we know there's something there pulling on these stars, making them orbit faster. And there's a lot of it. It's like 90% of the universe is this dark matter. And yet we don't know what it is because apparently it doesn't interact with ordinary matter. It's kind of ghostly. It will just go through ordinary matter, whatever it is. And so they built a detector using uh, many, many atoms of of xenon that uh, presumably when when this... Uh, dark matter interacts with them, it'll generate a certain signal. They haven't found it. They haven't found it. What they instead found is something else that was remarkable. So they built an instrument to detect one thing, it hasn't found it, and instead the same instrument detected something else that was kind of interesting, and that is the the decay of uh, this particular isotope of xenon, and it was a double electron capture, which is very rare. It's where two protons simultaneously suck in two electrons. And it has a very, very long half-life. From that they're able to extrapolate how long it would take half of it to decay, and it's an enormous, enormous number. So it's it's interesting scientifically, but it's not it's not terribly relevant to creation. It's just interesting.
0: All right. Have you have you ever read the biography that is on Rational Wiki of you?
1: Yes, I have. Yeah. I was honored.
0: You were honored? <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. So if you go to Rational Wiki, which is I think Wikipedia run by Atheist Agnostics. Mm-hmm and virulent Mm god-haters and evolutionists. They have a biography of you on there Mm -hmm. where they spend the first couple of paragraphs talking about how smart you are, how you earned your degree, where you got your degree, in spite of the fact that you were a young earth creationist, you managed to, you know, uh, slam your way through uh, college and get a degree after all. And now we're going to play a little game called Stop. You stop me when you hear a logical fallacy or something you'd like to respond to. Okay. I'm going to read parts of this, and I know that they're... There is some profanity in this, but I'm not going to read that. I'm not even going to read those sections. Okay, idea, here we go. Probably. Although some creationists claim that a creationist could not earn an advanced degree from a secular university because of institutional prejudice against their beliefs, Lyle's creationism failed to hinder his academic progress. While members of his master's thesis and PhD dissertation committees might have been aware of his young earth beliefs, their evaluation of his work was based on his research and not on his personal beliefs. True yeah, or false? That's true. true?
1: But again, I didn't let them know what my personal
0: beliefs
1: were. <laughs> so they couldn't, they couldn't eject me for that.
0: Given his qualifications in astrophysics, Lyle has become an authority on the, quote, starlight problem, end quote, in creationist circles. True? We're going to talk about that tomorrow in our lunch Q&A. We're going to talk about Einstein's physics and the speed of light, etc. However, his explanation for how distant starlight is compatible with a six-day creation only a few thousand years ago is very, very weak. Do you want to pause here for just a second to tell us what the starlight problem is, for those who might not know, briefly? Not how you would answer it, yeah. but what it is.
1: So it's the idea of, you know, there are these galaxies that are really, really far away. And even though light is fast, it's very fast, uh, you would think, based on how far away they are, that it would take light billions of years to get from there to here. But we do see these galaxies, so obviously the light has gone from there to here. And so how do you do that within 6,000 years? That's the distance starlight issue and I'll, and I'll explain uh, a possible solution to that tomorrow.
0: Okay, it essentially, this is the, the definition of your solution, supposed mm-hmm. solution, it essentially consists of immediately throwing out the conventional science just because it conflicts with scripture and then proposing that creation was supernatural therefore cannot be understood scientifically.
1: Yeah, that's just false. That's uh, because in fact, first of all, it is, the, the answer that I have proposed is conventional science. And it's uh, it's something that's been written up in the in the secular technical literature. John Winnie wrote about it. Um, uh, Carlo Gianani wrote about it in the in in, in standard physics literature. Uh, it's something that's well established called the conventionality thesis. So we'll talk about that tomorrow. What it what it is, what it means. But my point is, it's what this is well accepted in the standard scientific literature. And I did not say that it required a supernatural explanation. Now, now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for supernatural explanations. I just don't think starlight happens to be one of them. That, that's one of the things that we can explain naturally, actually. So they're just, they're just <laughs> it's just dishonest.
0: Most of Lyle's points just begin with the claim that the Bible must be true, cannot change, and so can explain everything. And he's no stranger to wall-bangingly circular logic. that you're the one guilty of circular logic.
1: You know, well, it's funny because, of course, whenever you defend an ultimate standard, there's going to be a degree of circularity, just most people are oblivious to that because they don't know anything about logic or they don't know anything about logical fallacies. But uh, I don't reason in a way that begs the question. I don't reason in a way that commits a fallacy of circular reasoning where I arbitrarily assume that which I'm trying to defend. It seems like that's what my, my critics do, actually, interestingly.
0: It shouldn't need to be stated that this is the opposite of what a good scientist should do. So while he may be a published and qualified scientist, the remarks he makes regarding creationism aren't actually very scientific.
1: Well, I would, you know, I would point out that actually, unless creation is true, science is unjustified because the fact that God upholds the universe in consistent fashion and has promised to do so in passages like Genesis 8.22, uh, unless, unless that's true, you can't do science. And so non-Christians who do science are the ones who are being inconsistent. They're borrowing on Christian capital in order to do what they, what they do.
0: Indeed, for Answers in Genesis, Genesis to use him as a leading scientist is practically a sham, as it leads their audiences to think that his ideas, which aren't really his ideas, just the same old tired arguments, automatically have credibility due to his real PhD. So, you have a real PhD, congratulations. I have a
1: real PhD, and that's why I'm honored that they that, <laughs> that they would admit that. And um, But, yeah, I mean, the fact is, I'm not aware of any secular physicist who's argued against my model, because they know that it works. Uh, my model is based on what's called the conventionality thesis and it's something that's well established in the secular literature it's something that that non-physicists don't know much about and it's counterintuitive and so that's what they're what they're attacking but i don't think they would have any physicists on their side secular or creationist
0: although he has done research with genuine merit into the sun's heliosphere
1: i'm honored thank you
0: lyle has yet to perform let alone publish credible work into starlight or creationism?
1: Actually, I did publish in, back in 2010, so that's, they're either nine years out of date or they're just being dishonest because I published, I passed peer review, so uh, that that is in the uh, technical literature.
0: Okay, so this next statement then may be an anachronism, something where they, not an anachronism, a different word, Uh, Where this was published before you actually published that because they say in July 2010 Lyle announced that he was working on a research paper that would be published In the answers research journal a creation science journal controlled by answers in Genesis He claimed that this paper would fully solve the starlight problem and that publishing it in a peer-reviewed journal would make it legitimate However, considering he is publishing in the ARJ and not science or nature where such earth-shattering revelations about physics belong Although Lyle denies that this should be the case some might suspect his idea isn't up to much.
1: So, in other words, the paper should be rejected because it hasn't been published in an evolutionary journal where they would reject it <laughs> because it's creation-based. So, I mean, you talk about circular reasoning. I mean, I think that's a wonderful example of it right there. That is an example
0: of what particular fallacy?
1: Be- begging the question. There go. That's right. Okay, go. right.
0: <laughs> Lyle is clearly a smart guy. This is the last paragraph. Lyle is clearly a smart guy I'm who honored, knows a, a bit more than most creationists, particularly about space. He's a confident speaker and quite passionate about science education when he isn't trying to replace science textbooks with the Bible. Is
1: that what I'm you're all, trying to do, you I'm, evil person? I'm, I'm all, I, I love science. I'm all for science. So again, it's just dishonest. I, I, I do believe that science is a valuable tool that God's given us. I, I got a Ph.D. in science. I'm not going to get a Ph.D. in something I hate or trying to replace. But I do recognize that science is predicated on the Christian worldview. I, I, science works because God upholds the universe in a consistent fashion. And the interesting thing is, you know, until recent times, everybody knew that. Most scientists of the past were were, were Christians and creationists even. Uh, one of my heroes of the faith, Johannes Kepler, who discovered the three laws of planetary motion, was a very devout Christian and biblical creationist. even calculated the date of creation. He's a young earth creationist. Yeah, I mean, he's the father of modern astronomy. I mean, it, it, so it's just ridiculous to think that that uh, you know, science is somehow antagonistic to the Bible, or that we're trying to replace uh, science with the Bible. I would argue that science is predicated; it rests upon the truth of Scripture.
0: Okay, another technical question. Okay. is Pluto a planet?
1: Oh well, <laughs> that's a taxonomy question. So it's just a question of how you want to classify it. And uh, most astronomers say Do you, do have said you it's regard
0: not. Pluto as a planet?
1: Uh, I don't. I don't. I think it was the right decision to pull it. Uh, and, and let me tell you. Let me tell you why. <laughs> Let me tell you why, Go ahead. because here's, here's the problem. We started discovering other objects out there that are about as big as Pluto, and one that we thought was bigger at the time. We now think it's a little smaller, but Eris, when it was discovered, was bigger than Pluto. So here's the question. Do you add another 20 planets, or do you pull one? Now, folks, think of the children in elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> Got to memorize all these extra planets, come on. When Pluto, Let me give you a little more background on this, it's kind of interesting. When Pluto was first discovered, they thought it was as big as Mars. Now, Mars is not very big. Mars is about half the size of the Earth, but that's substantial. And you need to understand, because it's, of its distance, it's hard to know the size. All you see is a point in, in, in the most powerful telescopes we had, especially before Hubble, the most t- powerful telescopes. All you can see is a point. How do you know how big it is? You make a guess about how reflective it is, and you look at how bright it is based on its distance from the sun, and you, you do some math, and you can make an estimate, assuming you know its reflectivity, which we, don't, which we didn't know. They assumed it was dark and not very reflective, and therefore its brightness was due to size. But then as, as research went on, they found out, oh, it's, it's actually smaller than Mars. It's actually smaller than the moon. Pluto is only two-thirds the size of Earth's moon. It's itty-bitty. And there are other objects out there that are about the same size. You're going to either have to add them or get rid of Pluto. Now here's the interesting thing. This is not the first time this has happened. In the 1800s, 1801, they discovered a new planet in between Mars and Jupiter, and they named it Ceres. Then they discovered another one the same year, Pallas, then Vesta, then Juno. Four new planets, all orbiting in between Mars and Jupiter, all tiny. And so there was a time, Neptune hadn't been discovered yet, there was a time when our solar system had 11 planets. And then in the 1850s, they started finding dozens and dozens more of these little objects, these little planets in between Mars and Jupiter, and they thought, you know what, this is a, this is a new, these are a new class of objects. And so they, they demoted them, they called them minor planets, and eventually they, they used the term asteroids. So if you've heard what asteroids are, the first four asteroids that were discovered were classified originally as planets. And then when they discovered that, that in fact, uh, they're much smaller than the traditional planets, and there are a lot of them, they got demoted. The same thing happened with Pluto. The only difference is that the length of time, Pluto was discovered in 1930, and so it was a planet for 75 years before they finally decided, you know what, there are lots of other objects that are nearly that size. So it really is the largest member of a new class of object, trans-Neptunian objects. And there are hundreds of them now. What did you call it? Trans-Neptunian object. Okay.
0: In your book, Taking Back Astronomy, you write this. The planet Mercury is more like the Moon than the Earth. Mercury is about one-third the size of the Earth and has no appreciable atmosphere. It is essentially a large rock in space, a cratered, barren world, Using the term world, synonymous with planet. Mercury stands in stark contrast to the riches and beauty of the Earth. At the other end of the line lies distant Pluto. This tiny world has an average temperature of about 50 Kelvin, since it is nearly 40 times farther away from the Sun than the Earth is, the Sun would appear over 1,000 times fainter, as seen from Pluto, than it does from the Earth. So, if you use the term world and planet synonymously...
1: Which I don't. That was your assumption, not mine. Oh, you. Okay. The Moon is a world, but it's not a planet.
0: I have enjoyed viewing these planets through the telescopes. That's yeah. on the very next page. True.
1: Well, hey, when I... So, were you when I, when wrong I,
0: then, or are you wrong now about Pluto not being a planet? <laughs>
1: Both, because when I when I viewed Pluto, it was Both. a planet.
0: That's a logical contradiction, isn't it? No,
1: because a contradiction is a and not a at the same time and in the same relationship. Oh.
0: so since you said two different things at two different times, yeah. this is not a contradiction. Yeah.
1: When I viewed Pluto for the first time, it was uh, it was in the nineteen nineties, and at that point, it was a planet. It wasn't until two thousand five that it got demoted, and I think that was written in two thousand four. So. Although I knew it was, I think I called it a world because I knew it was coming. (laughs) Oh, did you really? Yeah, I knew it was going to get kicked
0: out. See, when I read that, I had to piece together world equals planet. You talk about the planets, you included that in there, but I searched in vain for where you called Pluto a planet. You called it a world. I did. But you called other planets worlds, including our own.
1: And and the moon, the moon would be a world. And Ganymede would be, moons are worlds too. Anything that's sort of round and,
0: Yeah. Right, world is not the same I'll, as planet. I'll give you that one then. Yeah. Right.
1: yeah. I thought you would. Give us the, the, the uh Create a Cosmos too, the DVD back there that I wrote for the planetarium show. I don't call Pluto a planet now. And this was before the decision was made. I just figured I figured it was coming. And so I just I just called it a world and I thought, you know, then whatever happens, I'll be safe.
0: <laughs> you don't have to rewrite the book now, because So I don't have to rewrite that. the book, yes. Is the earth round or flat?
1: The earth. The earth is round. Yeah, the earth is what round. What
0: are the arguments for the flat Earth? What do flat Earthers believe, and why do they believe that the Earth is flat? Oh wide? my!
1: There's uh, <laughs> there's a whole there's a whole psychology of conspiracy theories, right? And and some people are conspiracy theories theorists, and others aren't, and uh, I'm not. Uh, because a conspiracy theory is anti-scientific by its very nature because evidence against it is evidence for it right if if you say well there's all this evidence against it well that's cuz that's what they want you to think right you know and so i think that's i think the idea is that it's this vast conspiracy do you realize how many people would have to be in on it right everybody at nasa there's, there's thousands and thousands of people that would have to be in on this gigantic conspiracy and and God's in on it too, apparently, because He calls the world round in Job twenty six uh, ten. So God knew it was round. Uh, global flood—you can't have a global flood on a plane because the water runs off the side, right? So um, the Bible does teach a round earth.
0: So do they believe then that if the earth is like this, it's flat? That the sun rotates around it like this?
1: So well, there's there's different versions of it. But one of the, the the most common one I've seen it has the earth as a as a flat disc okay like a, okay like a cd or whatever and then the sun goes around like the sun's like a spotlight and it goes around like that and if you think about it the sun would never set in that view so if you've seen a sunset that disproves that model or sunrise either one cuz it would never set if it's going like that
0: what are the arguments that they use for it are they do they use biblical arguments
1: I, yes they claim that and i um you know they they list a bunch of scriptures And I read the scriptures, and most of them don't mention the earth, and none of them mention flat. So I'm like, I don't understand how you're getting that from any of these passages. I really don't. Uh, I think it's it's another logical fallacy called elephant hurling, where you just list a bunch of things and you don't say how does that actually prove what I'm trying to say. Um, I haven't heard a logical argument for it. It just here's the way it is, and if you don't believe it, well, they've gotten to you.
0: How would you prove to a flat earther that the Earth is round?
1: Well, I invite him up to a Pikes Peak um, in Colorado Springs, where you can see the curvature of the Earth. That'll do it. Uh, You could watch a sunrise in Colorado Springs because the sun, because the Earth's round, the sun, sun sunlight hits the top, illuminated. Before I can see the sun because I'm down on the, you know, I'm I'm at the base of the mountains, and then the the sunlight comes down like a curtain, right? And then by as soon as it reaches the bottom of the mountain, then I can see the sun. Because it's actually above the horizon. Another thing you can do too. This is kind of fun. Is if you're at a, if you're at a, a either the west coast or the east coast. So you can do either, either at sunrise or sunset. So let's say you're watching the sunset over the ocean. What you do is you're, let's say you're lying down. You're lying down. And you're watching the sunset. Okay. At the last little moment that the light fades, stand up. You will see another sunset. It'll take another seven seconds. And from that, you can actually calculate the curvature of the of the ocean. And uh, actually calculate the size of the Earth that way. So there, there's lots of different ways you can do that. Uh, the Earth—we've we, known the Earth's round since very ancient times. Eratosthenes actually measured the uh, uh, size of the Earth using the shadows at two different locations and cities on the on the summer solstice. It's, it's quite brilliant. And so people don't realize that we there's good evidence that the Earth's round. A friend of mine is actually an astronaut, Jeff Williams, and I got to chat with him once live on the space station over. We were skyping with him. And and, uh, that was one of the questions that came up was, uh, so Jeff, could you look out the window and tell us, you
0: know, is it, is it, round?
1: I said, yeah, it's, it's, it's round. It's actually round.
0: (laughs) All right, another one, and this might be kind of goofy. Was the moon landing faked?
1: No, the moon landing And how do we know that? I'll actually show you some pictures tomorrow of some of the instruments that we left on the surface of the moon. Uh, If you wanted to prove it, you actually can. It takes a little bit of, of setup to do this, but we, we left reflectors on the moon, in, in, in the, in, at least with Apollo. I think it was Apollo 11 where they left a reflector on the moon. It's a, it's a mirror that's designed to reflect back exactly in the direction that it, that it came from. It's a clever design. And uh, what you can do is you can bounce a laser off the moon. You can take a laser, shine it at the moon, and it will take three seconds to get the return signal. And people have done that, so we can actually confirm that we left equipment on the, on the moon up there. It's quite fascinating.
0: Would they have had the technology to fabricate a moon landing?
1: They would not have had the technology to fake it in the, in the 60s. If you think about it, think think about movies where people have landed on the moon. It always looks off, especially with gravity, because it's very hard to simulate one-sixth Earth gravity. You can't do it. It's only been very recently that they've gotten close to looking kind of right in some of the Hollywood movies that they have where people are on the on the surface of the moon. The way the dust spreads out, you, you, you step on the moon, the, the way the dust... Spreads out is different than it does on the Earth. It's ballistic because there's no air on the Moon, and so it's hard. And it's hard to get a perfect vacuum on the Earth. We can we can get close, but not not quite there. So it's funny because people say well, we couldn't have, we couldn't have gone to the Moon back in the '60s. Actually, we didn't have the technology to fake it back in the '60s. We didn't we didn't have we didn't have Photoshop. We didn't have these things, and so uh, there's no way they could have faked it. It's just not possible.
0: How long would it take to go to Mars?
1: Uh, between six months and two years, depending on whether we do it. If we used conventional methods, it would be two years, one way. Uh, you could do it in six months if you had a like a nuclear-powered rocket. You could get there quicker. Six months.
0: Why would we want to go to Mars? What's the benefit?
1: Um, there are some people I'd like to send to Mars. I don't know. <laughs> uh, there's not a lot of benefit. There's really... The, the only reason to go is because it would be cool to have people land on Mars. And it would be. It'd be cool. I, I was I, I was a little bit late for the moon. I'm a little bit too young for the moon landings and and my dad told me about them and and I thought wow what what a, that would be just amazing to look up at the moon and know there are people walking on that that's awesome and it'd be fun to send you know people to Mars and have them walk on the surface of another planet but it's unbelievably difficult to do that people don't realize the difficulty well we went to the moon you know the distance to the moon compared to the distance to Mars it's it's enormous and uh, there, there are problems you'd have to overcome. Being in, being in weightlessness for long periods of time is not healthy for you. Your heart shrinks, your, um, your, your, your blood supply decreases, your bones decalcify at a rate that's 10 times larger than someone who has osteoporosis. And so all kinds of nasty things. That, we're not designed for weightlessness, we're designed for gravity. Uh, but a bigger problem would be radiation in space. We're protected on the Earth because the Earth has a magnetic field and an atmosphere, both of which block cosmic rays. Uh, cosmic rays are not good for you. They cause mutations. You end up getting cancer, things like that. So. Um, and the astronauts who went to the moon, well, they were outside Earth's magnetic field for just a little while, for a few days. And so they got an extra dose of radiation. Probably not much more than I get when I go through airport security these days. But, uh, you know, but, but if you're in space for two years, that's a problem. And even and when you're on Mars, Mars doesn't have a global magnetic field, so you're still exposed to it. Mars has a thin atmosphere that'll help you a little bit. So there's all, there, there are all kinds of difficulties sending humans there. It's not as easy as people think. It's not like going to the moon. That was, that was child's play compared to going to Mars. Scientifically, it makes more sense to send unmanned spacecraft because then they don't have to worry about radiation and things like that. But there is the human factor that would be, it would be cool to see people on another planet.
0: Are those difficulties things that can be overcome with technology?
1: Maybe. Maybe. Time will tell. Time will tell.
0: Would you want to go? No. You wouldn't go? I
1: like Colorado. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Texas looks a lot like Mars in parts of it. <laughs> it kind of does,
1: yeah. <laughs> Mars is, uh, it's very, it's, it's actually, it's more like Kansas than anything. Mars is very, very flat. And you'll, you'll see some, on some of these sci-fi movies, they'll have these steep hills and things like that. It's not like that. There are, there are uh, tall mountains on Mars, like Olympus Mons, which is three times taller than Mount Everest. But it's shallow. The base of it would cover Iowa. So it's, it's very shallow sloping. And so there, there aren't a lot of steep features on Mars. It's, it's, very, it's a very, it's a very uh, Kansas-like Planet, and so there would not be a lot of features to see. I mean, it'd be cool if if I could if I could go instantly, if I could beam in there and, and take a few pictures and beam out. That'd be cool. But to spend two years on a spaceship in a tin can, no, thank you, pass.
0: <laughs> uh, what was one of the other things we were talking about today with Justin and Andrew? It was another subject I was going to ask you about Mars. Justin, Andrew, you remember it? I just had a question there I was going to ask you. I forgot what it was now. <clears throat> my memory's going with my age. <laughs> oh, you, you talked about weightlessness and the effect of the eyes. Yeah, yeah. What is that?
1: A lot of astronauts, when they're on the International Space Station, of course, they're in a microgravity environment where they don't feel the force of gravity. A lot of them come back and they need glasses. It, it, it negatively affects their vision. Is it a
0: permanent vision loss? It's permanent,
1: yeah. And uh, my friend Jeff Williams, he's very grateful that hasn't happened to him. It doesn't happen to everybody, and they don't know why it happens. Uh, maybe extra pressure on the optic nerve due to the redistribution of fluids in the body, but they're not really sure why that happens. But it, it happens quite frequently. Astronauts come back and they need glasses for the first time.
0: Much of the, much of the push to go to the moon and to Mars seems to be... Uh, driven by atheistic assumptions that we 're destroying this planet, we 're going to need to colonize others in order to save the human species. Do you see that?
1: Oh yeah, uh, and of course i don't agree with that presupposition, but that certainly is the motivation for doing a lot of those those programs, but I think we can nonetheless use the data that they retrieve to glorify God, which is like why God made these wonderful objects in space to declare his glory. Uh, so I 'm all for space exploration. I just my motivation's different.
0: The Mars Lander. What happened to that, and why? We're talking about that at lunch today. The Mars
1: Observer, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Um, that's <laughs> I think, what I meant. That's what I meant. I think it's. Out. I think it's the Mars Observer. I want to make sure I get the right one. But we were talking about <laughs> we we're talking about unit conversions, metric versus English units. And that, that spacecraft crashed because somebody did not do the conversion properly between English and metric, you know, or they were, they were assuming something was English when in fact it was metric or vice versa. So you now have a one, so now teachers now have a $1 billion example of student to students as to why you need to be able to convert units properly. So, yeah, it was just a big catastrophic billion-dollar mistake.
0: All right, we're almost done. Anything else you want to say?
1: Buy the books. Get
0: the book. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Are there any other quick questions about... Some of the things we've talked about here. Did we cover everything? Anybody have any quick questions? You want to ask Dr. Lau? Yes? Yeah,
1: Xenon. It's a very, very long time. Yeah. Oh, way more than that. Way, 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 way more than that. Gotcha. Okay, so the question is, uh, uh, if, if xenon has a very large half-life, does that mean it's actually been around that long for us to observe it? And the answer is no. Um, all you have to do is observe it decaying a little bit. See, a, a half-life is how long it would take for a substance to decay to half of its previous amount. Okay, Now, you don't have to actually watch it decay to a half amount. You can watch it decay 1%, and then you can extrapolate how long it would take to decay the full amount. So that's what they've done. They've, they saw one atom decay, and based on the volume, they could say, okay, that means that given this, this enormous amount of time, which is even longer than the secularists believe for the age of the universe, uh, by an enormous factor, given that amount of time, it would decay to half of its previous value. But they've only actually observed a little bit of the decay. Yeah, yep. Peter.
0: Oh, no, that wasn't it. I did think of what I was going to ask. Uh, Steve or Peter? Steve? Did you have your hand up? Peter. Are you familiar with the singularity
1: and would you explain your thoughts on it? Which, uh, well, what, what singularity in particular? Big Bang or black hole or what? What were we talking about? Oh. That's a different thing than I was thinking you were thinking. Okay. yeah i I'm, uh I probably won't touch on that actually um I don't know that a lot i don't know I haven't thought a lot about that particular point in in physics when we talk about a singularity we're talking about a a point in space that has no size and there's a couple different types um I probably won't even talk about those tomorrow but um yeah that's that's kind of what I thought you but that's not what you're asking and i I don't know how to answer what you're asking so
0: yeah all right. Um, I remembered one of the things I was going to ask, and we'll close with this. The Earth's magnetic field, mm-hmm. you talked about that. Mm-hmm. Is it, two questions, is it decaying? And with that, at what rate and should we be worried? And number two, evolutionists, atheists will say that that Earth's magnetic field has reversed, the polarity has reversed, mm-hmm. and that's their rescue mechanism. Explain that.
1: Okay, yeah, and, we'll, and I will hit this tomorrow too, but, I'll, but I'll, I'll briefly mention it now. Yes, the Earth's magnetic field is decaying. We've been able to measure the strength of the magnetic field since uh, the 1830s, actually. So for you know, almost 100, or yeah, it's been it's been quite some time So we we've been able to measure that. Yeah, century and a half, almost two centuries. So um, it's decaying. It appears to be an exponential decay, an exponential decay. So it starts out strong, and then it, the slope changes like that. So it gets it it never quite goes to zero. It just gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And the half-life is estimated to be 1200 years. so every, every 1,200 years, the magnetic field drops to half its previous value. interesting. and, and some estimates put it at even shorter than that. They put it like 900 years. We estimate the magnetic field would have been something like 20 times stronger at creation. The magnetic field is useful. it protects it protects us from cosmic rays, as I mentioned. So what happens as the Earth's magnetic field weakens, we get less protection from cosmic rays. yeah. Is that a problem? Yeah. But not in your lifetime because, the, 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 uh, again, the half-life is 1,200 years. So unless you're really taking your vitamins, you're not going to live to see it half to even half its current value. Also, the atmosphere does give us some protection. So even if we had no magnetic field, we'd still have some protection from cosmic rays. But uh, yeah, it'd be better to have a stronger magnetic field. What is the
0: maximum age of the Earth given the rate of decay?
1: 60,000 years. 60,000 years would be the maximum age of the Earth. You go back beyond that, the magnetic field would be stronger than is mathematically sensible.
0: It was, I was than taught that the world, our Earth, is a billion years old in high school. Yeah. So, is that a problem?
1: So, what they would say is, that they would say that the magnetic field has not always been an exponential decay. It's actually a sine wave, and so it oscillates back and forth. And so, they'd say that every now and then it somehow recharges itself. And so we'll we'll talk about that a little bit tomorrow, actually, and how that it really doesn't work. It's called a dynamo model, and I'll, I'll talk about that tomorrow. It's, it's 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 it is a rescuing device. It's not something that has good scientific support. There's no mechanism that would recharge a magnetic field for the Earth. It doesn't happen. We do think the magnetic field probably flipped a few times during the flood year, but then you have a mechanism. You have rapid plate tectonics, and that that disturbs currents in Earth's core. And so uh, a lot of creationists hypothesized that the magnetic field really did flip during the flood year, but there's no mechanism for that today because today uh, plate tectonics is very, very slow. It's not going to disrupt currents today. So today the magnetic field just decaying.
0: Before we are dismissed, is there any chance you change your mind about Pluto? (laughs) Not
1: unless you destroy those other 200 objects that we found out there. You could destroy those and then we could rescue. Or you could make Pluto bigger. We could we could spend trillions of dollars and add mass to it so it's a nice big actual planet. That would do it. So yeah, sure, I'd, I'd be willing.